You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben takes a closer look at a specially modified Android phone. I discuss how the Trump Justice Department got creative in trying to ferret out leakers of classified information. And later in the show, my conversation with Sumit Segal. He's Boston Medical's former CISO, and now with a company called Armis, we're going to be discussing the uptick in cyber attacks on healthcare institutions and why he thinks it's no longer an option not to have cyber insurance. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's dig into some stories here. Why don't you start things out for us? We're back to being the Joseph Cox show this week. I feel like it's been a while, Dave, uh, but I did choose one of his articles today. He, of course, works for Motherboard, uh, part of the Vice Network. And I stumbled upon his article, We Got the Phone the FBI Secretly Sold to Criminals. And I just love this story. Hmm. These are called Anom phones, and they were used uh, in an FBI honeypot to uh, attract criminals, basically, uh, who were lured into purchasing these devices. They seemed like they were encrypted devices that could be used surreptitiously to commit crimes. Really, it was all a setup that uh, the FBI was actually, and law enforcement agencies in other countries, were putting these devices on the market to trick criminals into using them because they resembled uh, other such devices that had these security features. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a bad guy and I need to communicate with my fellow bad guys and gals, uh, I can purchase one of these devices, and I believe that everything I'm doing is fully encrypted and outside of the view of law enforcement. Right, exactly, because you've probably come in contact with other similar devices, uh, and the reason the FBI and other law enforcement agencies were able to develop these devices is because they had human intelligence sources saying, we have these other operating systems out there that look like this. Mm. Um, So the way it works is you unlock the device, uh, and Joseph Cox uh, is talking about one of these devices because he was sent one uh, (laughs) by one of his readers. You open the device and it looks completely normal, like your average Android device. Mm-hmm. Uh, although at your first pass, when you enter in the passcode, there are a bunch of standard applications in there, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Tinder, but none of those apps actually open. Hmm. If you reset the device and enter in a new passcode, then you you end up on a screen that I think is just like the system settings and the calculator. Hmm. And then embedded in the calculator, if you enter in some sort of secret calculation, you enter an encrypted messaging service Hmm. or what you think is an encrypted messaging service. This all sounds very James Bond. 
It is. This is why I love this story because it's right out of like a poorly written thriller movie. Yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting, I mean, there are many interesting angles about this, but the FBI and other law enforcement agencies have to be really good at setting these up to actually imitate these secretly encrypted uh, devices because mm-hmm. otherwise the criminals would catch on. Right. And it has a lot of security theater embedded in it. So they have this thing where you can scramble your passcodes. So the numbers don't appear sequentially. Um, hmm. This appears to the users to be a really useful security feature because if third parties are watching them, you know they won't, wouldn't be able to deduce what the passcode is. So if someone's looking over my shoulder, for example. Exactly, uh, exactly. Hmm. And then they have a uh, wipe the phone clean button, uh, which yeah. they actually have on many of the devices <laughs> that real criminals use. Of course, law enforcement agencies have been prosecuting people for obstruction of justice, for wiping these devices. So, of course, they make it very easy for the criminals on this device. Just press that button, and uh, we're happy to prosecute you. Interesting. Uh, So the way they communicate is through this hidden encrypted messaging application that's inside the calculator. Uh, and, you know, somehow they know how to get to this page. Right. So this uh, device, uh, it's called an Anom phone, uh, and the operating system... Uh, they, they set up their own operating system. Uh, a bunch of people have inadvertently purchased them because they've been sold on the secondary market, eBay, as very cheap Android devices. Yeah. And people buy them, and you know, people who are tech-savvy enough start to realize what's going on. There are a couple of clues in the startup process. <laughs> uh, you know, this is fascinating to me because, like, I don't know, if you've ever watched a, a show like Breaking Bad, you know, or Better Call Saul, or, you know, any of those shows where people are doing things they shouldn't be doing, the, the way they treat their cell phones, you know, if they no longer need a device, a, basically a burner phone— they they break it in half. They, right. They they stomp on it. They don't put it listed on eBay. Uh, <laughs> right. That's a great point. I mean, I want, and I also I wonder who's selling these devices. If it's the criminals themselves, or just they've you know gone around the market and right somebody is looking for a very cheap device. <laughs> well, the applications <laughs> don't really work except for the encrypted messaging uh, on the calculator. Maybe uh, the FBI had a warehouse full of them and they can't use them anymore, so they're just letting letting them go for crazy prices. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, to a user uh, or to somebody who's uninitiated, this is an amazing Android device. It's yeah. a Google 4A Pixel whatever. Yeah. Um, so it, it's sleek. It has uh, a nice design. Of course, it turns out this is all a ruse, and the FBI, according to this article, and other law enforcement agencies across the world have obtained 27 million messages from uh, nearly 12,000 devices running this software in more than 100 countries. Um, They add an extra encryption key, which allows the agency to read copies of the messages. Hmm. Uh, So, you know, they're discovering things like uh, large-scale drug trafficking operations, human trafficking, you know, all different types of uh, illicit criminal activity. Hmm. So, as I said, this is interesting for a number of reasons. The one thing I always want to mention in these situations, people who are unfamiliar with our legal system and legal systems around the world seem to have the uh, mistaken thought that if they're, you know, manipulated by law enforcement into purchasing a device like this, or are tricked into admitting something in an investigation room that somehow that that's uh, an illegitimate law enforcement process. 
If you are fooled, you are fooled. You are in trouble. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement can engage in all types of surreptitious activity to catch criminals. And it's really up to the user to be tech-savvy enough to really figure out what's going on. Uh, Because there's, you know, once law enforcement does catch you, you don't have any recourse. It's You're not going to have any success saying, I was entrapped because they sold me this, you know, device mm, that has mm. a monitored— No th- fair. Yeah, yeah this, exactly. It didn't have a sticker on it that said, you know, it was courtesy of the FBI. <laughs> right. It's like on all those po- police procedural shows when somebody's like, if I ask you if you're an undercover cop, you have to say you're an undercover cop, right? Like, that's not really a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is just another instance where uh, I expect that people who are going to be prosecuted after having purchased one of these devices— might be of the mistaken belief that they have some sort of defense, that this was entrapment. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, whomever sold you the device literally convinced you to commit a crime that you wouldn't have already committed. This is not entrapment. This is just some clever investigative work. Yeah. Um, and it also means if you notice anything suspicious when you're starting up uh, your device, it could be a honeypot and uh, contact somebody who who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was certainly was aware of this story. This is something we covered over on the CyberWire. But I don't think that I knew, I don't recall ever seeing this number, the 11,800 devices. That is that is a much larger scale than I had pictured in my mind. Yeah, I mean, they created a whole market, which mm-hmm. is really fascinating. And like I said before, they had to be good at what they did, uh, you know, you're, you're not just designing an investigative tool. You're designing a product that people are going to actually want to purchase and use. Right, right. So you have to have people at the FBI and other law enforcement agencies across the world who know how to develop devices and make them attractive to potential consumers. I mean, mm-hmm. it ends up becoming a, a whole industry. Um, and I can't wait until the movie comes out about this <laughs> when somebody gets their sweet new Pixel 4a right, right. and uh, thinks that they're using a very secretive encrypted chat application and their calculator, yeah. uh, you know, goes through their cocaine drug smuggling operation and then the clever FBI agent knocks on the door and says, <laughs> we saw everything, right. you know. Right, or the innocent person who, who who gets drawn into a world of crime by, by, from the, the phone that they purchased innocently on eBay, you know. <laughs> yeah, and also when you open the device, it does reveal the operating system, which is called Arcane OS. Hmm. Um, and I think now that uh, some of these devices have been released, people would be able to recognize that this operating system is not exactly on the level. Yeah. I think is particularly interesting about how they developed these devices. And again, this mimics real devices that are out there in the market is that all of these would be useless to people who aren't criminals because the real applications don't really work. When you first open the device and they have your standard uh, home screen with applications on them, that's all a ruse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Camouflage. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, so people who aren't criminals would immediately toss away these devices and be like, this is of no use to me. But mm-hmm. if you want, you know, your super encrypted chat messages in the calculator application, then <laughs> there's probably not a great reason that you're doing that, right. to be Just honest. Just use signal. Just yeah. use signal. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. All right. Well, we'll have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, again, uh, Joseph Cox, who uh, we really need do need to send him a, a gift basket. <laughs> He's the gift that keeps on giving for the show. Yeah, we, we really do. And thank, <laughs> thank him for putting out interesting content and yeah. giving us a lot of food for thought. Yeah. 
Uh, my story this week comes from the Washington Post. Uh, this is written by Devlin Barrett and Spencer S. Sue. Uh, actually, this was drawn to my attention from Kim Zetter, uh, also a well-known uh, reporter in the space, uh, on Twitter. Uh, the, the title of the article is Trump Justice Department Effort to Learn Source of Leaks for Post Stories Came in Barr's Final Days as AG, Court Documents Show. So this uh, story covers some of the efforts uh, from the Trump administration's Justice Department trying to get to the bottom of some leaks, leaks of classified information. Uh, But the thing that really caught my eye and I think is uh, particularly relevant to our conversation is they they tried to go through a security company, a company called Proofpoint, a uh, company that we discuss over on the CyberWire, well-known, well-known, well-respected cybersecurity company. I think they've even been an advertiser over on CyberWire. But um, oh, we better not say anything bad. About it. <laughs> but the Justice Department uh, tried served Proofpoint to to get information from them to try to find uh, data from reporters. Turns out Proofpoint was providing security services to the Washington Post, and so the Justice Department. Uh, had a secret court order uh, for Proofpoint to try to get some of that information. And that is not an avenue that I recall hearing about. We hear about them going after the the Googles of the world right. and, and so on and so forth. Um, so shall we dig into this, Ben? What, what is your take on this? Yeah, I mean, that's the really novel angle of the story. I don't think the actual investigation is particularly surprising. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we now know, and we've talked about this in the past, that the Trump administration from its earliest days to its latest days were uh, pretty obsessive about damaging leaks that were coming out Mm -hmm. uh, and were being shared with national reporters. Some of those reporters, I might add, are people that we talk about all the time. Um, We were just talking before we started. Ellen uh, Nakashima, Mm -hmm. who was a Washington Post technology writer, we've referenced her articles repeatedly. She was one of the people whose records were sought as part of this investigation. Right, right. And I think worth pointing out, too, that this isn't uh, necessarily a partisan kind of thing. I mean, this this sort of thing really uh, revved up during the Obama administration. Oh, yeah. The Obama administration was very obsessive about obtaining the records of journalists to root out leak investigations. Mm-hmm. It is certainly not uh, something that's particularly partisan. Yeah. Um, and this was done in the waning days of uh, the Trump administration while Attorney General Barr was still there. So it was before the final days in office where the Dust- uh, Department of Justice was kind of in shambles and, and was without leadership. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this was— uh, authorized at the top, but as you said, this is not unusual. I mean, administrations of all parties become obsessed with who's leaking potential classified information, especially if it's potentially politically damaging. Um, but yeah, the, the interesting part of the story is absolutely that they didn't go through what we now consider the standard process of going directly to the service providers, the Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, Hmm. to try and obtain this information. I mean, that we're, we're very used to. Going to a security company, um, which is what the Proofpoint Corporation is, is a novel method of trying to obtain these communications. Now, Proofpoint didn't respond for uh, to requests for comments. We don't know the extent of their involvement. Right. Uh, you know, if they are legally required to retain these records, they are probably going to retain them. Um and what we know from the documents is that the federal government had strong reason to believe that disclosures of classified information were not only being shared 
uh, to journalists, but they're potentially coming from members of Congress, mm. uh, which is a source of their concerns. You can understand why they'd be desperate enough to go to some of these security companies. If they just went to the Washington Post and said, hey, you know, who's <laughs> who's leaking this information to you? Right, the Washington right. Post would tell <laughs> the Washington them. Washington Post would hold up their copy of the First Amendment and yeah, say, go, exactly. go pound sand. <laughs> yeah, I think they, they might even use saltier language than that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, you know, and I suspect that they they probably tried the standard avenues we see of going directly to the service providers. Um, but this is where, you know, they, they were really desperate to find out information and using a uh, company or a firm that supplies data security services uh, as a novel, creative way of trying to obtain this information, especially since they know that some of the the, the uh, journalistic outfits have purchased the services of this corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that definitely is the the interesting angle here. Uh, there's some interesting details as well uh, following the release of this information. The U.S. Magistrate Judge uh, Zia Faruqui. She says in the article, she noted in an order that even after acknowledging the investigation's existence, prosecutors continue to try to keep secret the specific stories under investigation. The judge refused, questioning why the scope of unsealing was so narrow, given that the investigation was closed without any criminal charges. Now, this is what I, this is, I I just get a a chuckle out of this, that uh, she goes back to uh, Merrick Garland in his former position as a judge on the Court of Appeals. She says, uh, she, the, uh, the judge noted that the government's sealing power may not be exercised indiscriminately and cited a July 2020 opinion written by the current Attorney General, Merrick Garland, uh, Faruqi wrote, a sealed matter is not generally, as the government persists in imagining, nailed into a nondescript crate stored deep in a sprawling, uncatalogued warehouse. Spoiler so- alert here, by the way. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know how often uh, folks uh, reference Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, uh, as this article points out, the movie that ends with one of history's greatest treasures being buried inside a sprawling bureaucracy. Um, I think there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of poetry there on the on the on the <laughs> behalf of uh, Judge Faruqi. Yeah, and also on Merrick Garland, who has more in him than I imagined in terms of uh, <laughs> his his literary references. Right, right. The serious part is, you know, non-disclosure is is very important when there's no reason to continually classify information. Mm-hmm. And now that we know that the Justice Department has admitted they're not going to file charges against the reporters who were tracked as uh, part of the story or against the members of Congress, rather, who were tracked as part of the story. Mm. So there's no reason now not to lift these non-disclosure provisions. It's in the public interest. And there is no no longer any law enforcement justification for keeping this all secretive. Right, right. And, and uh, the Biden administration has said that they're uh, going to dial back pursuing reporter sources. That's what they've said, yeah. Um, and Time as, will tell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And as, as I've said, I think previously on this podcast, where the rubber meets the road is if there's a piece of incriminating information that comes out about the Biden administration. Mm. Uh, will mm. this principle still hold? A lot of administrations come in and say, we're, you know, we're not going to spy on journalists. Right, uh, right. But, it, you know— someone gets some incriminating information about Hunter Biden or whatever, whatever the scandal of the day is, then, you know, 
maybe they'll change their tune on it. So we certainly have to be very vigilant, even though they, they have professed uh, a desire to stop investigating leaks by, by looking into journalists. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, you can uh, send us an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Sumit Segal. He is uh, the former CISO of Boston Medical, uh, and he works with a company called Armis now. And our conversation centered on the uptick in cyber attacks on healthcare institutions and why, in his opinion, it's no longer an option not to have cyber insurance. Here's my conversation with Sumit Segal. In, in context of healthcare cyber insurance, this has been around, I would say, since the early 2000s. At this point, uh, so it goes back about 20 years. And really the genesis of all of this was when the information security incidents against healthcare organizations, they started to become more complex where organizations realized that it actually costs money to not only figure out how to contain an incident, but how to respond to it, how to recover from it. And in addition... Outside of the IT work that's involved, having to manage uh, the data elements of it with regard to exposure. So how to handle communications with their patients, how to handle PR, and how to handle uh, all the logistics that go along with that process. They they quickly realized probably in the mid-2000s that this is very expensive from a perspective of the result of an information security incident. And that's kind of what the, obviously the insurance um, organizations realize that as well. And that's what kind of gave birth uh, to the cyber insurance industry. Um, So what we've seen so far is that organizations have had a lot of time now to grow up from an information security perspective. And the insurance industry has also had to grow up from how they offer the policies how they underwrite them and what what they're willing what they are willing to and what they're not willing to uh, cover as part of their insurance riders. So where we find ourselves is over the last fifteen years, when the uh, first insurance policies came out, they were mostly centered around 
information security risk management. They were centered around self-attestation from the healthcare organizations, and they largely covered the expenses that were made as a result of that specific incident, not mm-hmm. in general information security. Fast forward you know, through that time to today, now we have a smorgasbord of different types of policies that cover everything from direct expense to indirect expense to third parties to, uh, you know, even slicing and dicing with regard to do you let the insurance company, for example, handle the forensic efforts or the the PR efforts or do you do it yourself and the insurance company reimburses you? Those kind of, I would say, a la carte options have uh, come about. So, that's kind of how the overall landscape has changed. Um, education is still a big, I would say, benefit of having an insurance policy as well that helps uh, risk and information security or, um, professionals within healthcare organizations understand what really their purview is, as well as access to third-party legal counsel. So so those features have kind of stayed through through the times. And what we see now is the insurance company have insurance companies have wisened up to say, hey, we're not just going to sometimes take your word for it of what you're doing with security. We want to actually have you use a third party for attestation for how well you're doing security. Or we need to see a concrete approach to your security program and security strategy aligning with your enterprise risk management approach, mm. which is, which is you know, it's, it's I, I would call it maturing over time. So that's the that's I would say that that's the high level kind of landscape of what things look like today. And are the insurance companies in a position of, of sort of um, you know driving improvement on the part of the healthcare providers? I'm, you know, I'm thinking of you know for for example for your homeowners insurance. Yes. You know, they're they're going to ask yes, you, do you have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen, and and <laughs> do you have smoke detectors? You know, those sorts of things. That yes. if you have them, chances are you're going to get some kind of a discount. Does that mm-hmm. that mindset uh, apply to healthcare as well? Uh, it's it's coming in. I don't think it's there across the board yet. But if if you're talking globally, and even if you're talking just from North America perspective, I I think we have become much better as an industry in general to understand the benefits of having insurance. Like like in your example, I understand conceptually what a fire extinguisher does for me, um, mm. but if I don't know how to actually take the pin out when you actually press the button, it doesn't right. do me any good, right? <laughs> so, right, right, right. <laughs> so, so, so that's kind of where we are within the security industry right now, where the healthcare organizations understand that that is needed and there's definitely value in it. They're kind of in this mixed, weird stage where it's a love-hate relationship between them and the insurance providers because a lot of times when ins- the claims are actually made, to give you an idea, if it costs an organization a couple million dollars to have an insurance policy, their deductible may be a couple hundred thousand dollars before the policy will actually cover anything, mm. right? So the organization introspectively, and the organization, I mean the healthcare organization introspectively, has to figure out at what point of their risk cycle is it actually worthwhile to transfer that cost to the insurance company. So in, in, in other words... Is it make does it make financial sense for me to submit a claim or not? Right, R- right. So, so, so I, I and a good example just happened to me yesterday on this was, you know, we had 
it was called with a couple of tornadoes where I live that went through. And when I called the insurance company to say, hey, we had some bad storms. Can you come take a look at my house for external damage? They said, well, why don't you get a third party to come in and do it before we do it? And then if that cost that comes out is more than a deductible, then it would make sense to submit a claim. Otherwise, it may be actually cheaper for you to absorb the cost. So same kind of analysis hap- is starting to happen now from the healthcare institution side of healthcare institution side of the house because what I would call the integration between information security as a discipline of IT to now becoming a practice within the in- enterprise risk management group has largely increased. So they're having those conversations, but as of today I haven't seen anything that, that predicates the fact that the costs are going to be cheaper if you have good processes. <laughs> it's actually on the flip side. It is, I will cover you better if I if you prove to me that you do security better. <laughs> that's that's more like the approach at, at this point. Yeah. Do you have any insights on, on the approach that the insurance providers are taking in terms of what the types of coverage and the, the amounts of coverage that they're willing to provide? Yeah, it, and I don't think there's a baseline for that because the types and amount of coverage uh, is dependent upon what is the policy writers, uh, the underwriters are willing to issue and what the premium costs are that organization is willing to willing to take. So to give you an example, when I was giving you the high level lands, the, the lay of the land, so to speak, you may have a policy that only covers your costs as it pertains to the incident that you're dealing with, but doesn't cover the cost of implementing the changes that need to be implemented so that doesn't happen again, right? Hmm. Uh, Versus another institution may have that piece of it as part of the writer as well. So those a la carte options are available today, and it's largely predicated upon direct impact, so impact to you as... Uh, David's company, for example, mm-hmm. versus you having the insurance company provide coverage for not only you, Dave, for your company, but downstream companies that are part of your health health system as well. Hmm. So, so we have a situation right now where coverages can extend anywhere from the low couple hundred thousands from a financial perspective to that can go all the way up to you know, a percentage of revenue, for example, for a health system. So that could go up in the tens, 20, 30, 50 million, 100 million dollars range, right? It, it it depends upon what the organization is willing to pay. A more important question becomes is for the healthcare organizations to not just focus on the premium and coverage, but to focus on value that the, the insurance provides. So for example, when I told you that, hey, healthcare organizations have realized that it's one thing to respond on the IT side, but it's a whole other thing to stand up a call center for the barrage of call fit calls that I'm going to get of what happened to my data? Why did you mess with it type of thing, right? Right, right. So it may be more useful to have a lower coverage for the direct financial impact, but it may be more useful to have bigger coverage to say, hey, you're not only going to cover my call center, you're going to cover the process by which I actually put the letters in the envelope and send it out and then track the responses that come back. You're going to cover the cost of the external counsel that I need to hire to essentially deal with all the legal situation that comes from these. So so where we sit is the cost and value of a policy goes far beyond just the financial cost of uh, from a regulatory exposure perspective, right? 
which I'm assuming that's, that's what you're asking of what is the dollar amount. Um, yeah. The so so a lot of the healthcare organizations actually do take that kind of analysis to say, hey, does this policy help me get educated? Because I'm a health system that spans 28 states. Every state has their own requirement on what do I need to do for data. Does this help me navigate that? Does it give me access to resources for best practices or incident response or legal counsel that are cheaper than what I can get on my own? Does this help me get access to forensic technology that I don't have? Right? Does this mm-hmm. does this help manage, like I said, the the third-party logistics efforts of incident response. So so those become part of the additives that go into determining what the money either into the policy looks like or what they cover. But in general, these policies are not cheap. I've seen, you know, um, in my career itself, I've seen premium amounts be as low as $20,000, $30,000 a month, upwards of you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, depending upon the size of the organization. Hmm. The relationship between the healthcare organizations and the providers of the cyber insurance, is that, is it a collaborative relationship? Is it adversarial? Does it, you know, is, is it collaborative right up until the point they have to make a claim? Like, you know, how does that typically play out? No, absolutely. I, I think it's collaborative. I, and, and for two reasons. One, most Enterprise risk, so most of the time, most healthcare organizations are self-insured, right? And mm. that rolls up into the enterprise risk group uh, within the health systems. In general, they do, do not have the expertise to self-insure for cyber risk. So uh. it, it becomes more of a conversation of saying, hey, I don't have that capacity or capability in-house, so I'm going to get somebody to help me with that. The The friction comes in when when the either at times of policy renewal when the terms are being changed so you had one policy for five years and then the insurance company comes back and says uh, i'm not going to cover that now because i've mm-hmm. because i've gotten screwed <laughs> by other people right, right. say they do something and then when you know poop hits the fan nothing uh that you said you did was evident um, in the response criteria that I helped you with. So it was blatantly obvious that you weren't doing what you were saying you're doing. So mm. so that's where the friction comes in, where when you have these massive policy changes or writer, writer changes that get enforced down the healthcare um, organization part, that I see some combative, not combative, I would call them fierce conversations that, that yeah. happen. Um and which they should, because you don't want it one way, right? So, right, right. Uh, so, insurance and insurance policy is only as much as the organization is willing to accept the cost of transferring the risk. So, so that's where I see most of the friction happens at time of incident. It's a please do whatever you need to help this go away or get this get better. Right. Um, that's not the time uh, that I see any friction. Friction also happens when it comes time to cover costs. So when the bills actually come forth, either from the government that you didn't do your work and they pass it on to the insurance provider and the insurance provider said, well, you didn't do what you say you're doing. So this bill for 200,000, we're only going to give you 20, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's the that's where I see a lot of the friction happen. And we've seen multiple times a couple of lawsuits that have occurred for the concept of third-party risk, 
right? Uh, how does insurance cover third-party risk where the contracts have been signed and there's, I would say, discrepancy in the language in the writer of what third-party risk is for healthcare organizations. So that's th- those are the areas where there's some friction with regard mm-hmm. to the relationship. Otherwise, I would call it a fairly collaborative thing where companies know that you need it. Kind of your 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 example of you need homeowners insurance, right? So, right, right, right. So that's not an option. All right, Ben, what do you think? Really interesting. I mean, I think the the industry around cyber insurance for healthcare institutions is kind of meandering on the same path that other industries probably went through when they were developing that very market. Mm. It seems like it took them a while to analyze the risk profile, uh, and then they really had to start collaborating their products to the true cost of mitigating these threats. Right, right. It seemed like there was an explosion in ransomware, and these insurance companies were like, Like, holy crap. Yeah, I don't want to pay for all this. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. And I think that probably happens in, in every market. Like, you try and set out you you know you use the smart accountants you try and set up policies that reflect the actual risk yeah. well and you want to do a land grab to get as many customers as possible as quickly as possible right right, right. then it turns out that ransomware as we now know uh, is a thing a big thing yeah it's happening to all different types of institutions including healthcare organizations providers all across the country mm-hmm. uh and it's not just the cost as he said of recovering the data. It's rebuilding your entire system to prevent future attacks. Yeah. Uh, And you can understand why insurance companies are going to be reluctant to pay out to cover all of that. Right. Um, So I think this means that the market is still going to be developing uh, going forward just because we're still in the early stages of ransomware as a risk that has to, you know, be evaluated by the actuaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, and the prices are doing nothing but going up right now. Yes, it's one of those vertical vertical bars on the graph right? Uh, where it's not going to get cheaper anytime soon. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Sumit for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.